0: There were any number of disciplines Edward Israel could have studied at the University of Michigan in 1881, where he was set to graduate in just a few short months. But for him, there was only one that had any chance of satisfying the unending curiosity and wonder he held for the great unknown. Astronomy. Edward was a bright student, eager, intelligent, and kind. His academic acumen coupled with his warm personality made him the perfect candidate for an opportunity. One of his professors nominated him for something nearly impossible for any 21-year-old to refuse—an adventure. There was an expedition, the Lady Franklin Bay Expedition, commissioned by the U.S. government as part of an international attempt to collect scientific data in the Earth's polar regions. The majority of the crew were military, most of them having served in cavalries across battlefields, not ships sailing into untested territories at the northern edge of the map. The team needed a scientist, an astronomer specifically, to capture barometric, magnetic, and meteorological data. When offered the position, Edward Israel immediately said yes. Edward came from a family of merchants— His parents, Menace and Tilly, were the first Jewish residents of Kalamazoo, setting up a dry goods store on the corner of Michigan Avenue and Rose Street. Edward's father passed away when he was only eight, leaving his mother Tilly to run the store and raise their four children on her own. Now, her son, her Edward, was on his way to make history. The university allowed him to graduate early so he could hurry to meet his crew and his captain, Adolphus Greeley, in Washington, D.C., where their journey began. Tilly said goodbye with a mixture of optimism and fear for her child as she watched him leave home for the unknown to test his scientific skills and himself against the metal of nature further north than anyone in history had ever gone. She watched him recede, into the distance, confident with the promise of a bright future. It was the last time she would ever see him alive. I'm your host, Kristen Robine Terpstra, and this is the History Cache. Let's have a look inside. The Lady Franklin Bay Expedition of 1881, also referred to as the Greeley Expedition, was part of the first international polar year, which, despite the name, extended over four calendar years, until 1884. This was a collective, collaborative, international attempt to gather scientific data in the Arctic. The first International Polar Year took seven years to organize and had 11 participating countries, with teams placed at 14 different stations. The goal was to take synchronized astronomical, magnetic, and meteorological data in the Arctic in order to better understand how climate worked. There have been four total International Polar Years, the last having taken place between 2007 and 2008. That one had over 50,000 people involved, from 60 different countries. It was much more comprehensive, organized, better funded, and safer than the first International Polar Year. According to PBS, which has a great documentary on the Greeley expedition, the US had been on the fence about joining in 1881. Many in Congress didn't want to fund a scientific expedition, they wanted to focus on fighting and displacing indigenous tribes out west. This lack of support for the Lady Franklin Bay expedition showed. Only a few weeks were given for recruitment, and none of the crew chosen had any polar experience at all. Most of them had never even been on a ship. Not even their captain, Adolphus Greeley, who was selected to lead this expedition, had any experience whatsoever in the polar regions. Greeley was a soldier. He joined the army as a Union soldier at the age of 17 during the American Civil War. He fought in some of the war's bloodiest battles, fighting at Fredericksburg, Balls Bluff, and Antietam. After the war, he was promoted to lieutenant and was placed in the U.S. Signal Corps, where he developed an interest in weather systems while working on the new telegraph network that was expanding across the nation. The telegraph system gave us a way to track weather on an unprecedented scale, over thousands of miles. Greeley loved it and developed a strong interest in weather and the understanding of how it worked, So when he heard of the International Polar Year taking place in the Arctic Circle, he was immediately intrigued. Greeley and his crew were ordered to establish the most northern station in Lady Franklin Bay, Canada, only 600 miles from the North Pole. When they embarked in July of 1881, everything went perfectly. Even the weather seemed to cooperate with their mission. Greeley wrote as they left that it was, quote, under the brightest of skies, with the finest of weather. Their ship, Proteus, carried them north through a narrow passage between Ellesmere Island in Canada and Littleton Island off the shores of Greenland. They expected to encounter pack ice here, which traveled south down the passage each year, but nothing, not even ice, hindered their progress. They were surprised at how uneventful their trip north was. On the way, they picked up Jens Edward and Frederick Thorlip Christensen, two indigenous guides from Greenland. These two were the only crew members who had any Arctic experience. They would help guide, hunt, and drive dogs as part of the expedition. The plan was to drop everyone off as far north as they could. Once they reached the place that would become their home for the next two years, the ship left them. According to Arctic photojournalist Jerry Kovalenko, one of the organizers of the expedition didn't want Greeley and his crew to have access to a ship, believing ships were refuges that made explorers timid. This naive decision, born of what I imagine must have been a mixture of inexperience, overconfidence, and the underestimation of nature, would prove disastrous. The plan was for the crew to collect data for a year. After that, a relief ship carrying supplies would restock them with provisions for a second year. At the end of that second year, another ship would arrive to bring them home. The 25 explorers were dropped off by the ship Proteus, along with 350 tons of supplies, which was enough to sustain them for three years. Once the Proteus receded into the distance, They were completely alone. Alone in a way most of us will never have to experience. They had no way of contacting anyone. No loved ones, no ships, no other expeditions, no help. All they had were themselves and each other in one of the harshest environments on Earth. Greeley wrote that he was glad to see the ship go, writing, quote, "'I am glad the ship is gone.' it settles the party down to its legitimate work. And work they did. They built an outpost they called Fort Conger. Under the guidance of Sergeant David Brainerd, chief of the enlisted force, they built quickly, and they built well. Then the harsh wind and bitter cold of Arctic winter set in. And it wasn't just cold, it was dark. When the sun sank beneath the horizon for the last time, not to be seen again for months, it cast a bleak shadow across the world, a world that seemed asleep, with all life dormant, but their own. In the Shackleton series, I went more in-depth on how the months during a winter of darkness, called the Polar Night, can affect a person psychologically. People, even during polar nights today, can experience disturbed sleep, impaired cognitive ability, and negative affect or the tendency to feel an internal state of negative emotions like anger, sadness, fear, and anxiety. Being alone in the dark for months with the same people in the same space is difficult enough, and if adverse effects of the polar night take hold, it can lead to all sorts of negative outcomes, including violence. One famous incident of this occurred in 2018 at the Russian Antarctic Bellingshauser Station on King George Island when engineer Sergei Savitsky, age 54, attacked Oleg Beloguzov, a 52-year-old welder, stabbing him with a knife. Several sources stated Sergei stabbed Oleg because he kept telling him the endings to the books he was reading reading being one of the only pastimes Sergei had to pass the long hours. According to an article from Live Science, that detail came from an unnamed source that wasn't verified. It's much more likely the incident occurred after months of rising tensions between the two. Incidents like this are rare, but even at polar stations today, which are much better stocked and equipped than stations like Fort Conger were, incidents like this happen. Now take away every possible comfort and mode of communication with the outside world Sergei and Oleg had, and you've got an idea of how isolated and unequipped Greeley's crew was hundred and thirty-seven years prior to the incident at Bellingshauser. As winter covered them, thoughts of home, of loved ones left behind, became painful, and the cold offered no comfort. It was a bitter winter. The lowest temperature reading they took was minus 57.2 degrees Fahrenheit. That's minus 49.5 degrees Celsius. We don't know what the wind chill that day must have been, but even if there wasn't one, life at that temperature could be misery. Despite the weather and the waning morale of his comrades, Edward Israel, who had never known cold like this, even having been born and raised in Michigan, consistently took measurements. He and his crew took 500 readings a day of wind speed, barometric pressure, magnetism, and other phenomena, all at coordinated, predetermined times. Carrying out work in that kind of cold takes an iron will. If you spit at minus 57 degrees or go to the bathroom, anything that comes out of you is frozen before it hits the ground. If your eyes water, your eyelashes freeze together. Frostbite can occur in seconds. For the rest of the crew, those who weren't part of taking measurements or collecting data, the months of darkness were an excruciating trial in boredom. When left on its own, boredom can become a dangerous problem. Greeley could see morale was dwindling. He forbade anyone from lying around what were considered daytime hours. After this, many of them passed the time by sitting on benches and arguing. Greeley then decided they needed something to do, so he gave them chores. Feelings of resentment began rising when Greeley ordered the cavalrymen to tend to the officers' needs, including washing their laundry for them. Greeley was only 37 years old, but he'd already had 20 years of military experience, and many of those years had been spent commanding others. He thought giving orders and creating a strict hierarchy would suffice to push them all through the winter. But commanding an Arctic expedition wasn't the same as commanding a cavalry on the battlefield. Barking orders didn't work. Morale did not improve. The bored crew members started to become unruly. In front of his angry and excited crew, Greeley told his men that he wasn't one to be trifled with and that he wouldn't stop at the loss of human lives to restore order. He didn't know it at the time, but that statement would later be tested. Greeley's threats were not the antidote to the failing morale, and the group continued to break down. A frustrated Greeley, unsure of how to regain control in such a lonely, vast, unconnected expanse, began having his doubts about himself and their mission. Greeley had a wife back home, Henrietta, and he missed her. He wrote to her constantly, letters he had no way of sending until he could send them out with the supply ship scheduled to meet them in summer. Henrietta hadn't wanted Greeley to go on this expedition. She said it was his ambition and pride that drove him. He told her he just wanted to make his mark on the world. Things grew more tense. Emotions rose. After months of darkness, morale was at an all-time low. Then in March, just as they were at the emotional end of what they could endure, the sun returned. I've never experienced losing sunlight for five months in a row, so I can't speak on what it must have felt like for those 25-stranded souls to see the sun rise again after so many hard months of arctic winter. What would it be like seeing the sun rise and watching the light awaken a blackened landscape, welcoming life back into the world after what had felt like a never-ending lucid nightmare of darkness? Only a small number of people can answer that question. With new light came renewed hope, and the crew eagerly awaited their supply ship, which would carry not just food and supplies, but news from home. They were there to collect scientific data, and they were still successfully doing that, but there was another agenda on the list as well. Much of Congress at the time thought spending money on scientific achievement wasn't enough of a reason to fund an expedition. They wanted something else, some sort of feather in their cap they could show to the rest of the world. While Edward Israel was still busy collecting data, Greeley assigned two different parties made up of a select few men each and told them to get ready for a special mission. Their goal was to reach the furthest point north possible, further than anyone else in history ever had. It was time for a secret adventure. At the time, the record for furthest north was held by Great Britain, a record they'd set in 1607. The U.S. wanted to push further. Greeley assigned two different competing teams to the task. The one that pushed furthest north would be hailed the winner. One party was led by Brainerd, the other by expedition photographer George Rice. Rice had quickly become one of the most popular members of the party, Though he had been signed on as the photographer, he wouldn't hesitate to help anywhere he could with anything he could. Over the long, depressing months of winter, Rice had proved himself to be a leader, and managed to keep his cheerful outlook with more resilience than most. Rice led his team up the Canadian side of the pass. Brainerd took the Greenland side. Both were connected by ice, which acted as a bridge this time of year. The way was grueling. Hauling sleds, dogs, and supplies over ice and snow isn't easy. Digging, pushing, pulling over uneven terrain meant it could take hours to travel only a few meters. After four weeks of an exhaustive journey, Rice and his team had to return back to camp. The terrain made it impossible for them to move forward. They returned to camp unable to even come close to breaking the British record. Brainerd's team across the frozen water pushed on. They pushed through frostbite, snow blindness, and exhaustion, refusing to cede an inch to the harsh terrain until, finally, history had been made. Brainerd wrote in his journal on May 13, 1882, after reaching a higher latitude than any other human being ever had quote, We unfurled the glorious stars and stripes to the northern breezes with an exaltation impossible to describe. The flag they planted had been sown by Greeley's wife, Henrietta. They had reached 83 degrees, 23 minutes, and 8 seconds north. It took them 60 days to break a 275 year old record. They made it around four miles north of the previous British record, which brought them within 455 miles of the North Pole. Brainerd and his crew returned to Camp Conger on June 1, 1882, and were met with celebration. The energy in the camp was different now. The sun had brought renewed belief in their mission, the successful expedition north had brought them validation, and the coming supply ship was bringing them hope. Each day, they watched the horizon, expecting relief to arrive at any moment. But as the days dragged to weeks, hope was being replaced with fear. In July, they would climb the surrounding hills to see as far as they could, hoping to spot the relief ship's silhouette materializing over the water, putting their fears to rest. It was all anyone could talk about. The ship, called the Neptune, was on its way, but the ice was thick between Greenland and Ellesmere Island, too thick for any ship, any crew, any captain to penetrate it. Faced with an impassable sea full of ice, the crew of the Neptune could do nothing but turn around. No one was coming for them. By the end of August, Greeley's crew knew their worst fear had been realized. They had enough supplies to stretch out rations for three years, but the failure of the ship to arrive was already making them doubt anyone would come for them the following year. Without a ship of their own, they were stranded, and the pangs of loneliness, isolation, and disappointment began to erode the thin mantle of a fickle morale once again. That is when their second winter arrived. The sun sank below the horizon, and the peace of mind that had come with a long-awaited summer sank with it. Greeley did have a plan B but it was only to be employed in the direst of circumstances. They did not have a ship, strong enough or large enough, to carry them home. The expedition organizers had made sure of that. However, they did have three small boats, one small steamboat equipped with two whaling boats that could potentially haul them back down to Cape Sabin about 250 miles south. These small boats were not made for cutting through ice, and any one of them could easily be crushed to pieces on the water. If no ship reached them by the end of next summer, their orders were to take these three small boats on what was most likely an impossible escape route to Cape Sabin, where the army had assured them they could find supplies. Once at Cape Sabin, if the army still couldn't reach them, it would place a rescue party just across the water on Littleton Island in Greenland. At least, that was the plan. A plan that was wildly unpopular amongst the crew. During the winter, the team continued to collect data. Despite the cold, harsh conditions and months of darkness, they did not waver in their commitment to the real, scientific purpose of the mission. The plan had been for them to collect data for two years. This they accomplished successfully. In the spring, the Proteus, the ship that had brought them to Lady Franklin Bay two years prior, was on its way once again, this time to bring them home. I wish that's where this story ended. Between the Proteus and Greeley's crew were hundreds of miles of impenetrable pack ice. Pack ice can be unpredictable, and there was always a chance that the flows traveling south could choke the passage, closing off the only escape route they had. That's exactly what happened in the spring of 1883. Faced with the same problem a year earlier, the captain and crew of the Neptune had turned around, but that was a different ship with a different captain. The Proteus was commanded by Ernest Albert Garlington, and he decided they would push through. Garlington was an army lieutenant and had never been to sea before this mission. The ship's captain strongly objected to moving ahead, telling Garlington there was no way forward. But Garlington overruled him. They sailed into the ice. Within a few hours, the Proteus was crushed in that ice and sunk. Miraculously, its crew survived. They made their way to outposts on the Greenland side of the water. Garlington was supposed to winter on Littleton Island if he couldn't reach Greeley. That way, Greeley and his crew could make their way down from Fort Conger in their small boats and meet Garlington and the supplies they would need to survive. Instead, Garlington and his crew fled. Greeley and his crew were abandoned again. Without their knowledge or consent, their plan B had been taken from them. There was no plan C. Once again, they were on their own, now facing a third Arctic winter no one had signed on for. As soon as Greeley's wife Henrietta learned what had happened with Garlington and the Proteus, she immediately began contacting everyone she could to try and convince someone to go and rescue her husband and his crew while it was still possible to do so during the sailing season. According to PBS, she asked the Signal Corps, the Navy, the Secretary of War, and even Chester A. Arthur, who was the President of the United States at the time, urging them all to at least place supplies on Littleton Island like they were supposed to do in case the explorers chose to make their way south. All of them refused her. Now faced with the third Arctic winter, Greeley had to make a decision. According to anthropologist Susan Kaplan, they could have stayed at Fort Conger. They had a base there, and though their supplies would be running thin after a third year, there was ample game to supply them with meat. They could have potentially survived for years at Fort Conger, albeit uncomfortably. That is what the majority of Greeley's crew believed they should have done. They wanted to stay where they were and wait until rescue was possible. Greeley disagreed. On August 9th, 1883, Greeley ordered them to abandon camp, leave whatever supplies they couldn't carry, and sail south with their three small boats. It was the worst decision Greeley would ever make. His crew vehemently disagreed with this order, but they obeyed. If they had simply stayed at Fort Conger, it's absolutely possible the tragedies that were to soon follow could have been avoided. Greeley had his crew leave the safety of Fort Conger because those were his orders, and because he was told they would find supplies and rescue if they did so. This poorly hatched plan had been preordained by organizers with no Arctic expedition experience. Greeley followed his orders, and his crew followed theirs, sailing unknowingly towards disaster. Immediately, things began to fall apart. The men were clearly distressed, and Greeley, unsure of how to lead in a situation like this, began to unravel. Frustrated, he began reacting with anger towards everyone, threatening to shoot those that didn't fall in line. He would rage one moment, spitting out threats, then retreat to his sleeping bag for hours at a time, ignoring everyone in his charge. This only served to worsen the already dismal morale of these explorers, again mostly cavalrymen who had never been this far from home or in such an unpredictable and harsh environment. Brainerd, a military man who followed his orders always to the letter, and who had been a real rock for Greeley, wrote in his journal about this point in the expedition, quote, The CO is seldom out of his bag. His appearance indicates the most abject cowardice. The men don't lose sight of the gross ignorance and incapacity of the man who brought them to this present strait. Unquote. With their leader recoiled into his sleeping bag, others had to take charge. Leonard helped retain order. Rice, the photographer, helped navigate their way through the pack ice, falling into the frigid water several times, as he did so. And Edward Israel, their astronomer, was key in their quest to find Cape Sabin. According to an article from the Kalamazoo Public Library, His readings were the only way the party could determine their location over the constantly shifting ice. Without him, it's not just possible, but likely, that everyone would have perished on the way to Cape Sabin. The going was slow. They could only move through the pack ice as fast as it allowed them to, and the ice was indifferent to their troubles. A week after they set out to sea, Greeley told his officers he was considering abandoning the boats entirely. He thought that putting the men and supplies on the floating ice and hoping they simply drifted the right way to Cape Sabin would be a more efficient way of finishing their journey over the water. His officers instead urged him to turn around. They wanted to go back to Fort Conger and winter there where there were still supplies and ample game. Greeley again refused. Orders were orders. And that was that. Greeley wasn't popular at this point in the journey. The crew was becoming desperate, and all were afraid that his stubborn insistence on a plan Brainerd called insanity would see them all dead by spring. Talks of mutiny began to be whispered into the arctic wind. Most thought Brainerd should take over leadership of the expedition. He was an officer who shared their fears, he proved his leadership skills on the trek towards the North Pole the previous year, and unlike Greeley, he was a comforting authority figure they could believe in. As Greeley was stuffed into his sleeping bag, unresponsive to those around him, three men approached Brainerd. They told him they wanted to get rid of Greeley. They wouldn't need to kill him, as the expedition doctor could declare him insane. They wanted Brainerd to take charge and return them all to Fort Conger. Brainerd, a man who had disagreed with every one of Greeley's decisions on the matter of where to winter, must have considered this, at least for a moment. But Brainerd didn't know how long it would take the army to reach them at Fort Conger. It could be one more winter, or two, or three, or maybe the army would eventually abandon them completely as a lost cause. If he agreed to mutiny, he feared the crew would lose respect for all authority, which was already hanging on by a thread. The last thing he believed they needed while alone at the top of the world, isolated and desperate, was lawlessness. Besides, by now, they had sailed too far to turn back. Brainerd refused, and that was the end of any further talk of mutiny. A week later, their second week at sea now, the pack ice became impenetrable. The floes froze together, capturing the floundering crew inside of its indifferent grip. They could no longer move forward. They abandoned the steamboat, took what supplies they could, and transferred them into the two whaling boats, which they hauled behind them. They would continue their journey on foot, walking over the pack ice, with some of the coldest waters on earth swirling beneath them. That ice eventually began to break apart. They were battered by storms, wind, and cold until, piece by piece, the floe that was their refuge began to grow smaller and smaller, until they were huddled together on a floe barely large enough to contain them. They must have been reluctant to use the whaling boats as they were not designed for travel in pack ice. The fear of being crushed, the boats slammed into splinters, was weighed against the likelihood of falling into the freezing water below. Then, just as their desperation grew maddening under a sky growing darker each day, they washed ashore on the banks of Cape Sabin, after 51 brutal days at sea. Cape Sabin was not the outpost Fort Conger had been. There was no game here for the hunters to bring in. The landscape was rocky, a granite expanse seemingly void of life. It was not the refuge they were hoping it would be. However, now that the party had reached solid land, Greeley sprung back to life. Perhaps it was the success of the journey which he must have doubted, or perhaps the feeling of solid earth below his feet had rekindled his confidence. Whatever it was, he crawled out of his sleeping bag and began giving orders once again, this time with more confidence than erratic anger. Only days of sunlight remained. He ordered them to build a shelter, which they did so they could face the onset of winter. He sent out search parties to find food caches left by the army and other expeditions. The crew, who had been without direction or tasks as they had drifted helplessly at sea, were now comforted to have a sense of order and to have something they could actively do. For the first time in a long time, Greeley and his crew felt hopeful. Greeley believed his rescuers sent by the army that year had established a camp just across the water on Littleton Island after they had been unable to reach his team at Fort Conger because that's what the army told him they would do. He thought if they could just get through the winter and hold out until April 1st, that rescue party could cross the water, bringing them desperately needed supplies before taking them home. But there was no one waiting for them on Littleton Island. Their rescue crew had fled months ago. They called their new home Camp Clay. It was uncomfortable, crowded in their shelter. For the last two months, getting here had been their biggest hurdle. Now, it was hunger. The rations were already growing thin, and without the caribou and muskox that had surrounded them at their last camp, their hunters could do nothing. Hunger became a constant pain. At one point, Brainerd, who was in charge of all food rations, wrote of how he'd found a barrel of dog food that had been spoiled. There was green mold throughout all of its contents. When it was thrown onto the ground, the men swarmed on it like locusts, devouring every last crumb of molded dog food. That may seem extreme, but when a person is starving, there's almost nothing they won't do to stave off that hunger. If it sounds like I'm foreshadowing a bit here, it's because that's exactly what's happening. They had to find more food. Rice the photographer turned navigator turned explorer led several expeditions out to find caches of food. In November, after five days of wandering in the dark, Rice and his team stumbled upon what must have felt like a miracle. They found 500 pounds, or just over 226 kilos of meat, that had been left by a previous British expedition. This was obviously a windfall, but hauling it back to Camp Clay was an exhaustive, intense trek through increasingly punishing Arctic weather. Among Rice's team was a carpenter named Joseph Ellison. The conditions they were in were severe. The cold and wind made frostbite almost inevitable. The lack of food made the physical labor needed to haul 500 pounds almost impossible to summon. On their return journey, Ellison collapsed. Their leader, Rice, had to make a decision now. They could take the food back to Camp Clay and leave Ellison to the elements and certain death, or they could take Ellison and leave the food. Rice chose to save Ellison. Ellison, riddled with frostbite, screamed, begged them to let him die. But they would not leave him. His companions dragged him across the frozen terrain until they too collapsed. Rice, summoning the last of his strength, continued on by himself, hiking over the barren, frozen wasteland for 12 more hours until he reached help at Camp Clay. A rescue party led by Brainerd was dispatched to find the others. When the rescue party reached them, Ellison was barely alive, existing somewhere in the twilight between life and death. His face was completely frozen. He could no longer move his limbs, Limbs, it was obvious, he would lose. When Brainerd spoke to him, trying to cheer him, all Ellison could do was whisper, over and over, please kill me, won't you? Just after 2 a.m., they arrived back at Camp Clay. No one was angry that the food had been left behind instead of Ellison. They gathered around him and showed a sympathy which somehow surpassed their hunger. All they had out here were each other, and any one of them would have chosen Ellison over that 500 pounds of food. When Greeley ordered the rest of them to cut their meager rations so Ellison could be given more, no one disagreed with him. Surprisingly, Ellison survived, but his condition was grave. He'd already lost a finger to frostbite, and it was obvious several others would soon follow. Within days, his right foot fell off from the severe frostbite. Since he'd lost all feeling in his limbs, he didn't know his foot was gone. None of the men could bring themselves to tell him. Their situation had never been so dire. As things worsened, Greeley somehow grew more resilient. He was no longer the raging, hiding commander incurring talks of mutiny. Now he was level-headed, his ambition and pride having fallen in the wake of a budding warmth, empathy, and sense of camaraderie. In this dark hour, Greeley had finally become the leader they needed. He gave his rations away and even took on chores the others didn't want to do. This endeared him to those who had so recently wanted him stripped of command. One of his men wrote, quote, Lieutenant Greeley has shown himself to be a man of more force of character and in every way greater than I had believed him to be. I am very sorry not to have found out sooner his full worth. They were in the midst of their third winter, and there was no way to know if it would be their last. The crew still believed there was a team waiting for them across the water. Greeley did not. He knew now they had been abandoned. He had believed in his orders and had followed them. I can't imagine what it must have felt like for him to know he'd brought his crew to what was most likely certain death. Greeley knew that if a relief ship were on the way, which it wasn't, it wouldn't be able to reach them for at least another eight months towards the middle of the summer. Greeley wrote in his journal, quote, No game. No food, and apparently no hopes from Littleton Island. We have been lured here to our destruction. Rice wrote that Ellison, who was still suffering the effects of his severe frostbite, was concerned at the talks of cannibalism starting to circulate around him in the tent. Everyone grew weak with hunger, and without enough vitamin C in their diet, scurvy began to set in. When we think of scurvy, we tend to think of what it does to our teeth. And yes, scurvy causes your gums to turn porous, which loosens your teeth and makes your breath horrendous. And it can cause your teeth to eventually fall out. But scurvy is progressive and begins to affect the rest of your body and your mind, too. Your body aches swells, your wounds reopen as your body loses collagen, and with it, the ability to create scar tissue. The slightest touch to your skin can cause bruising, and you become so lethargic, so weak, that you can't get out of bed. Headaches, gastrointestinal bleeding, blurred vision, hemorrhaging in the whites of your eyes, chest pain, and painful swollen joints follow. Then you start to lose cognitive function. You can't think the way you could before. You become depressed as you lay there, waiting for a death that feels like it can't come soon enough. It's an awful way to die. Two months after living at Camp Clay on January 18th, 1884, Sergeant William Cross, an expedition engineer, died of scurvy and starvation. The remaining crew mustered what strength they had and buried him on a hill overlooking the camp. This would become known as Cemetery Hill, and many of the men who were digging a grave in the snow for their fallen companion would be joining him there soon. I know this isn't the most cheerful moment to end the show today. This is a heavy piece of history, and I need one more episode to tell it the right way. But please don't despair, there are some silver linings, so I hope I haven't depressed you into not listening to part two. I'll even let you know now that not everyone dies. That may seem like a spoiler, but all of this happened almost 140 years ago, so that's pretty far past the typical 7-10 to 10 days of the spoiler zone. Thank you so much for listening to the show today. I certainly hope you'll join me for the last installment on the Lady Franklin Bay Expedition, which will be ready for you in three weeks. If you enjoyed listening to the show today, please consider rating and following on iTunes or wherever you listen. This really does help the algorithm find me. Until next time, if you'd like to get a hold of me, you can email me at historycashpodcast at gmail.com you can find me on Instagram, and not really on Twitter anymore. I mostly just post there when a new episode drops. If you'd like to help support the show, you can check out my Patreon page at patreon.com slash historycashpodcast. You can also make a one-time donation. You can access the link for that on the website under the support tab. That website is historycashpodcast.podbean.com. Background music is licensed through Envato Elements, theme song from Audio Jungle. Stay safe. Stay smart, stay warm, stay curious. And until we meet again, my dear friends, go make some history.